Thank you, worship team. Good morning, church. On uh, Thursday, Thanksgiving, after I had finished eating for the day, and I mean, you know, a couple of times I got to eat before I'm finished eating for the day, I picked up my phone and I texted the Christmas queen herself, Pastor Ariel, and I said, now, Merry Christmas. Now I can officially say Merry Christmas because Thanksgiving is done and, and even God knows you don't start till after Thanksgiving because the first snow hit today, right? Even God's like, I'm not decorating the earth until you finish your Thanksgiving meal. And so thank you, Lord, for being gracious about your stuff. And I'm so grateful for that. Before we get into uh, this morning's message, there's one more very special holiday I want to recognize because today is our very own Miss Angelique's birthday. Miss Angelique, would you wave for us? Come on. Wave for her. There she is, somewhere hiding next to Victor. Victor, point at your wife. Let him know where she's at. For those of you who don't know Miss Angelique, Miss Angelique is my administrator. She is so much more than that. She's an event coordinator. She is a taskmaster. She is uh, a very much behind the scenes in everything that we do. And we greatly, greatly appreciate you, Miss Angelique. So let's one more time. Amen. Have a very happy 28th birthday, Miss Angelique. We love you. We're grateful for you. But uh, obviously, I've been joking this month about how, how much I love Thanksgiving, and I do. It's, it's my favorite. It's awesome. You don't have to buy any presents. You just eat and hang out and have fun. Um, but uh, the beauty of Thanksgiving is that it doesn't end on Thanksgiving, right? The beauty of Thanksgiving is that the next day, you don't even have to cook because we got how many know? Leftovers. And if y'all don't have leftovers and you didn't cook right, you gotta cook for an army, all right? We always do at least two turkeys, like 45 pounds of meat, because people show people who didn't even eat with us show up to our house like, can I get some of your turkey? I'm like, yeah, I haven't seen you in 10 years, but yes, we prepared for you. Like, we're always ready to have the extra. And I don't know about you, but there are some foods, they even taste better the next day. I don't know what it, I don't know if it marinated, I don't know if that turkey jelly did something special to it, I don't know if the stuffing is just better the next day, and, and sometimes it's these concoctions we make up out of leftovers. In my house, we always cook our turkey pavochon style, right? So it tastes like lechon. So I ain't never had a dry piece of turkey. People are like, turkey's dry, then your turkey's nasty. I've always had good turkey. And so what we do on the next day is we make turkey sandwiches, right? We get these big pan largos, and, we, and I love, I mean, I look forward to the turkey sandwich day as much as I do the Thanksgiving day and so I enjoyed my sandwich I enjoyed my time and you know I always go it's funny when we both buy the bread I'll always I always pick up the bread I'm like mommy how much bread should we get uh, she's like, ah, oh, just a couple of loaves. I always get like five or six loaves. Because I'm like, but we're going to have a lot of sandwiches, mommy. You never know. People are going to pick up. People take full loaves of bread. I'd be fighting people in the supermarket trying to get my loaf of bread. But it's important to be ready. It's important to be prepared. Because the worst thing that could happen is somebody forgets the leftovers. I want to talk to you today about that, actually. The title of this message is Forgotten Leftovers. And if you have your Bible, I want you to open up to Mark chapter 8. I'm going to read a few passages in a moment, but let me set the scene for you. In Mark chapter 8, shortly before what we are just going to read, Jesus performs yet another incredible miracle when he feeds 4,000 people with just some bread and fish. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, I thought it was 5,000 people that he fed. Yes, 
The answer is yes. He did that two chapters earlier in Mark chapter 6. So in Mark chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 men, not including women and children, with just, I guess bread and fish was his favorite meal. That's what he served up. And so he multiplied it and was able to feed 5,000 plus women and children. So somewhere around 15,000 people got fed. And then two chapters later, he performs the very same miracle for another group of people for 4,000 people. So this is, this is mind-blowing, right? Jesus should open a catering business. He is just doing the impossible with nothing. Some of y'all mamas she knew how to stretch a dollar, right? They can just turn a little bit into a lot. And Jesus was a master at this. So you would think with these two miracles alone, not to mention all the other miracles that he was doing here. I mean, just before this chapter, he healed the deaf and mute person. And, and there's multiple things that he's been doing with the disciples. You would think that they're starting to put two and two together. There's something different about this guy. He's got to be who he says he is. And yet I want you to notice something as we read in Mark chapter 8, just a few verses. Let me give you some, some instruction on what the Lord is talking about here. It says in verse 14, this is right after that miracle. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf left with them in the boat. Now to give you a background again, the first time when they fed 5,000, they had 12 baskets of leftover food. This time when they fed 4,000, they had seven baskets of leftover food. But somebody forgot the leftovers. They only had the one loaf with them in the boat. And then this is Jesus says, and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, leaven is an agent that causes dough to rise and expand. Uh, yeast is an example of a leavening agent. It's something that we put in bread and it gives you those beautiful airy pockets. Remember like during the pandemic when everybody thought they could make sourdough? Leaven yeast is what makes those beautiful air pockets in the sourdough, all right? And so Jesus is giving them this illustration. Hey, listen, speaking of bread, watch out that you don't allow the leaven of the Pharisees to get into you. In ancient times, when they were making bread, just like with the sourdough thing, uh, they would save a piece of the raw dough that had the leaven in it, and they would use it for the next batch in order to have that yeast in the next batch. This small piece of dough was enough to fill the whole batch. So what's Jesus warning them, right? He's telling his disciples, don't allow the same arrogant, prideful spirit that has filled the Pharisees and Herod to infect you. See, Herod and the Pharisees, they both wanted to see the kingdom of God, but they wanted to see it in their way. Herod was thinking of a, a practical kingdom. The Pharisees were thinking of a, a natural kingdom that would overthrow Rome. So they both wanted essentially what Jesus wanted, but not the way Jesus intended it to. Why? Because their motives were, were strictly for themselves, for power, for authority. They thought if God brings his kingdom, we, Herod as the king of the area and the Pharisees as the spiritual leaders of the area, we would have prominent and dominant roles in society. And so their hearts are not right. And so here is Jesus with his disciples. He's training them up. And it would be easy for them to get prideful also. Because, I mean, when you read the Gospels, they're always fighting about who's better anyways. There's this constant battle about who's going to be first in your kingdom. Who's going to sit at your right hand. Who's the best among us. And so Jesus had to constantly remind them, whoa, 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 whoa. Be careful about letting the same leaven that filled Herod and the Pharisees fill your heart. Now, you'd think they would get this spiritual principle that Jesus was teaching. But look at their response in verse 16 and the first part of 17. 
And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? So they got reprimanded, and now they're having this conversation. He's probably mad because we forgot the bread. And, and it's, such a, it, it's, it's such a frustrating thing I can imagine for the Lord because they don't get it. And I was thinking about this earlier. Um, you know, this week I was at home all week and, and our kids uh, really enjoyed it, but they also really enjoyed testing us this week. You know, kids at that age, three and four and two years old, they want to test your boundaries. They want to see what they can get away with. And my oldest in particular was testing my wife's boundaries and was constantly questioning everything. You know when they get to that stage, they say, hey, go to bed. Why? I need you to go to bed. But why? And then her thing was, I want to go to the sala with you. That's the living room for the no sabos in the room. She's like, I want to go to the sala. We're like, no, you need to go to bed. But why? Because it's your bedtime. But why? Because you're not listening. But why? And my wife is getting it up to here with her wife. And she, I was impressed. She would not stop. She could ask you the same question literally for an hour. I'm in the living room like, that's, that's kind of impressive. Like, her steadfastness is like, if we can hone that for the Lord, it would be fantastic. And so she kept with it. She kept with it. She kept with it to the point where, where my wife is just had it. My wife gets upset and she's just like, dude, I'm done. And she, I'm in the room with her and my wife is like giving it to her. And then she walks away and Josie looks at me and she goes, why is her face like that? <laughs> I was like, because you don't listen. And it's so frustrating when you're saying the same thing and you're not getting any results out of it. I wonder how many times has Jesus been saying this to them, has been trying to give them spiritual principles and they, they just, it's not about the bread. You're missing the whole point. And I think many of us can struggle with our perception or understanding of what God is really trying to teach us sometimes. You miss the spiritual lesson among the physical needs. You still think the problem is your spouse. You still think the problem is your bills. You still think the problem is your job. Well, maybe God is allowing some of those things to happen in order to get your attention. Maybe he's teaching you a lesson that you just keep missing. Maybe your prayers aren't being answered the way you think they should be answered because it's not, it's not that they're not being answered the way you want. It's that you're just asking the wrong questions. And God is trying to get you to the right questions. See, the disciples at this point, they should have been much more further along in their understanding of who Jesus really is. And for some reason, they're stuck. Now, it's not like stuck like the Pharisees who outwardly are rejecting God. It's not that they don't believe. It's that they're not fully surrendered yet. See, I think that describes some of us in this room if we're honest with ourselves. I mean, you believe enough to show up on a Sunday. I mean, thank God you're here. I'm very grateful for that. But not enough to give God any other day of the week. And I'm not talking about going to church. I'm talking about your life. See, see, well, we're, we're like, man, I believe enough to give God this part of my life. But no, my whole life, I got to manage these affairs. You believe in God enough to pray before you eat, but not enough to come to the prayer meeting on a Wednesday night. You, you believe in God enough to be saved, but not enough to be effective. I'm not questioning your salvation. Yeah, you're saved. You're just not effective as a Christian. You don't do anything. And this, again, if you're offended, that's between you and God. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. 
But the effectiveness of your faith should be evident in the fruit that you develop. The fact that people at your job don't even know you're a Christian means you're ineffective. The fact that uh, you, know, you outsource salvation to a pastor to other people means you're ineffective. The fact that you don't serve in any way, shape, or form means you're ineffective. I'm not, again, I'm not questioning your salvation. You will get to go to heaven. I just don't know how many jewels are going to be in that crown when you get there. I, I don't know how faithful you've been to the things God has given you. And again, this is where we find the disciples. God is not questioning their faith. Surely, they're following him. They're, they're with him. They've dropped everything to be with him. But he's saying, hey, listen, now is the time to be fully committed. And there's something that's stopping you from being all in. Goes on to say in verse 17 through 21, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? And pay attention to this. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? How many know you're in trouble with your parents when they start rapid firing questions at you? You know when your mom and dad would ask you questions and never let you answer? Why did you get this on your grade? Were you paying attention? Did you listen to the teacher? Were you even going to school? Are you even listening to me right now? Say, whoa, that's a lot of questions. But again, they're, they're, they're challenging you. And here Jesus is challenging them. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not understand yet? Do you not yet understand? I'm wondering if some of us are just struggling to understand. You just don't get it yet. You don't perceive what God has been trying to do. I mean, there are some people I've known and some people that you know where you're like, I'm amazed that God hasn't just struck you dead already. Like, how many chances do you get? How much grace is God giving you? I mean, if you think about sometimes our own lives, you're like, seriously, like if I added up all the stuff I've done in contrast to God, I'm amazed that he's still looking at me. And yet, it's not that God lets you pass, it's that God challenges to say, listen, there's something that's preventing you from getting to where you need to be spiritually. Something that's stopping you from being able to understand. And he goes into a few of those things that it might be. If you're taking notes, the first one is this. He asked them, are your hearts hardened? Have you hardened your heart? A hardened heart is one that's been calloused or closed off of the voice and the presence of God. The thing about callous is that they develop gradually over time. If you ever lifted weights, you'll know that you develop calluses on, on the parts of your hand that are constantly grinding up against the weight. It's your skin's way of protecting itself. It's, it's understanding, hey, there's a lot of friction and force coming against us. And so in order to stop our hands from ripping apart, we need to harden our hands in order to take on what it's being hit with. And a lot of times what happens is we harden our hearts as a defense mechanism. We harden our hearts because we've been wounded or because we've been hurt or because we don't understand. But the reality is a hardened heart is not an all of a sudden heart. It's a gradual thing. Happens over time. It's these little hits. It's not always these massive things. It's these little things that left unchecked harden our hearts. Our hearts can become hardened because of unchecked sin. Listen, you keep doing that sin long enough, 
you won't feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit anymore. And it's not because all of a sudden God's like, you know what? I was wrong. That's not a sin. Do it. Because a lot of people are, well, I don't feel conviction about this. Of course you don't. You're calloused. Again, if, if I lost all sensation in my left hand, if I just had no feeling receptors in my left hand and I stuck it in a bonfire, I'm going to be like, oh, look, I'm impervious to pain, but I still destroyed my arm. Just because you don't feel it doesn't mean it hasn't had an effect on you. And sometimes we think, well, listen, I don't feel bad about what I'm doing. That's even scarier. The fact that you don't feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit should terrify you when you're committing sin. Some of us have hardened hearts because of isolation from God or godly community. This is why it's so important. This is why the scriptures admonish us to gather together because we need one another. Because when you isolate yourself, it's easy to become callous. It's easy to become hard of heart. We become callous and hard of heart because of cynicism over time. There's a difference between being critical and being cynical. Critical is, I don't like the way we're doing things because I want what's best for us. I want us to be better. I want God to be glorified. That's fine. If you, if you think, you know, something's different, or hey, uh, when, when, when Pastor Joey comes up, you know, he should come up through the side door. I don't care. Whatever opinion you have. Okay, you, you have an opinion. That's fine. But being cynical is being critical without wanting the right results. It's just being critical for critical sake. And listen, some of us know cynical people in our lives. There are, there are many people, maybe even somebody who walked you to the Lord, who now has walked away and has become a cynic. Ah, oh, church, all they want is your money and, and the church doesn't care about people and the leaders are frauds and I don't even know if God's right. And, and they just become this bitter, cynical person, maybe because of church hurt, which I think if you really boil down church hurt, it's unforgiveness. The church didn't hurt you. Some individuals did, and you are unwilling to forgive them. And that has caused callous in your heart. And now you've hardened yourself, not just to those individuals. It always amazes me, especially when somebody has what they would call church hurt. I go, well, I understand how maybe one or two people in the church, or maybe even a whole, maybe half the church hurt you. Maybe half the church did it. That's not the only church in this city. So why have you abandoned God if it's church hurt? hardened heart is what it is you've hardened your heart to the things of God and now you no longer sense his spirit because you no longer desire it. your heart has been hardened listen Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 through 15 says it like this be careful then dear brothers and sisters make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving turning you away from the living God you must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember what it says today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. Ultimately, we harden our hearts when our desires become contrary to God's desires. That's probably, I would argue, the most common reason for a hardened heart, is you want this, and God said no. You desire this, and God desires this, and now, in order to be able to get what you want without feeling bad about it, without feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you sear your conscience. You stop listening. 
And now you feel like, well, now I have the freedom to do what I want. No, now you have become a bond to slave or slavery again to sin. You've been bondage to slave again. That's what you did. You had freedom in Christ to not sin, but you desire sin so much. It's like the Israelites. He mentioned right here, the Israelites, Jesus, or God miraculously rescues them out of slavery in Egypt, takes them into the wilderness. And because they're suffering for a little bit, even though God's miraculously providing bread and everything that they need, they start talking amongst themselves. Their hearts start getting hard towards God and they go, man, remember all the meat we used to have in Egypt? And they remembered the food, but they forgot about the slavery. See, some of us, this is an easy sign that your heart's starting to get hardened. You look back at your sinful life fondly because you remember the good times and forgot what those good times led to in the end. Be cautious because a hardened heart creeps up on you. And all of a sudden we say things like, I just don't feel the presence of God anymore. Well, it's not that God's not there. It's that you've cut off your feels. You no longer sense his presence because you've seared his conscience. And honestly, it's a way that you cope with rebellion. Here's the reality. Uh, when you give your life to Christ, you're ruined. He's ruined you. Because nothing else will ever compare. And in order to go back to something other than Christ, you have to try your hardest to forget who he is. And that's what happens when we sear our conscience. That's what happens when we harden our heart. It's our... Uh, it's our way of trying to forget who God is in our life. And you never quite do it. So he asked the question, disciples, have you hardened your heart? Are you not hearing me anymore? Are you not listening? Then he goes into the second aspect. He says, having eyes, do you not see? Having eyes, do you not see? There's an old saying, seeing is believing. I would add that maybe the reason you don't believe is because you haven't truly seen. When Jesus Christ reveals himself to you, there's no way to unsee that as we just talked about. He ruined you. You can never deny what you've seen. And I often said this when I'm at camps or conventions or even in services, and God does the miraculous. God does something powerful. One of the things I like to remind them is, hey, listen, you can never unsee what God has just done in your life. You can never unsee the miraculous. Once you've tasted and you've seen, once you've experienced the fullness of God, you can't unsee that. What you try to do is change the narrative of it. You try to explain it away. You, well, it was just a coincidence or, or you know, I was just emotional. Or, or you try to explain away what you've experienced, but you can't unsee it. It is what it is now. I've seen God heal. I've seen God restore. I've seen God transform. I've seen God redeem. And that's just in my life. I can't unsee that. I can't forget about the goodness of God. The problem is some of us have eyes that don't see. Take the story of the blind beggar. He, Jesus heals this blind beggar. And if you look at the story, we see him being questioned because after you received the healing, you had to go to the, the, the priest and the synagogue and, and they had to verify the healing. And so Jesus heals this blind beggar. He goes to get verifications. He tells them, this guy named Jesus healed me. He doesn't really fully even understand who Jesus is yet. And the Pharisees who don't like Jesus are like, no way it could have been Jesus. This is the work of the devil. This is that. And they are 
pummeling him with questions after questions after questions. And again, the problem is he's not even quite clear who Jesus is. I mean, there's this progression in the story. Every time they ask him about Jesus, he gets a little bit more enlightened. But even in the beginning, he's this guy named Jesus. I mean, maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's like, this is, this is not even a full understanding. But here's what he understood. As they keep pummeling him with questions, he didn't know a lot of things, but he knew one thing. I was blind. Now I see. Well, how do you, dude, <laughs> I was blind and now I see. Well, I can't, dude, I don't know who Jesus is, but I know what he did. I'll figure out the rest now. <laughs> but I can tell you my experience. And people can question your experience all they want. But one thing you know, you were once like this, and now you're like this. Well, how is that? I don't know if that was coincidence, if that was this or that. Here's what I know. I had an encounter with a man named Jesus, and now I'm different. That's all you need to know. And it wasn't until the end of the story where he starts to connect the dots and he reconnects with Jesus. And listen to what happens in John chapter 9, verse 35. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, do you believe in the son of man? The man answered, who is he, sir? Again, he's, he still doesn't get who Jesus is. I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby him had asked, are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty. Jesus replied, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. You can come to church every day and not see Christ. You can serve in ministry and be spiritually blind. You can be an expert in religion and fail to know Jesus. I was doing this course from a Yale professor on the New Testament survey. Phenomenal brain. Knows a billion times more about the New Testament than I ever will. But doesn't know the Christ of the New Testament. He's not a believer. See, you can know the words and still be spiritually blind to the impact. And so what does Jesus say? He said, listen, I came so that those who truly want to see me, I would open their eyes. And those who have no intention on seeing me are going to remain blind. This is why, if we can be really transparent, Christmas and Easter, two of the biggest services of the year in all churches, people show up in droves. And you see some salvations. But you don't always see a ton. Why? Because the people who show up, show up out of religious obligation, familial obligation, and come with hardened heart and closed eyes and have no intention of even wanting to see Jesus. And so what happens? Jesus leaves them blind. Why? Because they think they see. You think you know better. Well, I'm enlightened now, or I grew up in church, so I know the whole game and this and that. No, you think you see, but really you've been blinded. The Pharisees claimed to see, but their fruit was different. So your heart might be hardened and your eyes might be ineffective. What about your ears? Jesus calls that out too. He says, having ears, do you not hear? In the worst case scenario, our ears are drawn to things that appease us. The scriptures say uh, we'll be drawn to what our itchy ears want to hear. 
So we get locked away in our echo chamber, searching for what our itchy ears want to hear. This is the the greatest, I think, uh, battle we have when it comes to social media. Social media reinforces what you already think. The, the algorithm knows, hey, if this is where you lean politically, if this is where you lean sports-wise, if this is where you lean on this topic, then we are going to bombard you with more information that reinforces what you already think. And so you think you're right. Well, listen, everybody on the internet says it. No, dummy. It's, the algorithm keeps reinforcing what you already think. It's, that's, you're not listening to everybody on the internet. It just knows that this is what you keep searching, and so it's going to feed you what you want to see. It's going to speak what you want to hear. Forgive me for calling you a dummy. It's just it's frustrating. <laughs> Listen, we've all become accustomed to kind of listening. We kind of listen. Again, I, I hate to use my kids, but I'm going to do it while they're young and they don't remember this. <laughs> my, my, do- my second daughter is amazing at at tuning you out and listening only when it's convenient. So she'll, she'll go places she's not supposed to go, and I will yell at her, Liv, get in here. Liv, come to the sala. Nothing. She won't, not a peep. And I'm yelling, not a reaction, not a no. Just She just flat out ignores me. She is two years old. That is too young to flat out ignore me. And sometimes I got to bust out the big guns. You know what I do? I pull up her favorite YouTube channel just on my phone. I turn it up full volume and I just hold it in the air. And all of a sudden, all you hear is. And she comes running into the living room. See, it's not a hearing problem. Her ears are just in tune to only what she wants to hear. And when she hears what she wants, then she'll come running. We do the same thing. We kind of listen, right? You kind of listen to the show you're watching while you're online shopping. You know what I'm talking about? You're like, oh, what did he say? Rewind that. Oh, okay. (laughs) We kind of listen to the radio while we drive. We kind of listen to the pastor while he's preaching. But really what we're doing is our ears are are just open to possible buzzwords. Something good. So when you hear somebody go, "Mm," you're like, oh, what did he say? Was that good? That must have been good. That's why I need you to talk back to me sometimes. That's why. You, just not even for you or for me. It's for the people that aren't paying attention. So every now and then we're like, that's good, Pastor. Somebody go, what was good? Dang it, I missed it. Maybe I should put my phone away and pay attention. <laughs> Listen, when we really want to hear something worth hearing, there's an immediate reaction. When you really hear something worth hearing, there's an immediate reaction. Let's go back to Mark chapter 7, just one chapter before what we've been reading. Jesus here comes encounter with a deaf and mute person. And in verse 32, it says, A deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him, and the people begged Jesus to lay hands on the man to heal him. Jesus led him away from the crowd so he could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears, then spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. By the way, don't follow Jesus in these examples. Jesus healed people in a million different ways so that you don't copy the method, all right? We don't need a fingers and ears spitting on tongue ministry. Like, let Jesus do that stuff. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Epaphatha, which means be opened. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly and his tongue was free so he could speak plainly. And listen to this. Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone. But the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. They were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. 
He even makes the deaf hear and gives speech to those who cannot speak. Listen, when you hear good news, you can't help but speak it. I wonder if some of the reason why we're mute is because we're not hearing what God is actually saying. Some of the reasons why we don't share our testimony is you're not listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit when he prompts you. You're not listening when God is giving you divine opportunities. You're not paying attention to when the Holy Spirit is saying, here's your chance. Oh, this person just asked you what the sermon was about. Here's your chance. And you're sitting there going, "Uh, something about listening. And God is literally throwing you softballs. He's literally throwing you these amazing opportunities for you to interject. And he's whispering in your ear, now's your chance. But you're not paying attention. You're not listening. And because you fail to listen, you fail to act. But when you hear the good news, when you hear about the wonderful things that God has done, you can't help but share it. Even when I was in high school and and coming to Excel, our youth group, I remember I was so enthralled with the word of God that when the pastor would finish speaking, I would steal his paper, instead of paper notes back then, I would steal his paper notes and I would take them to my school and I would stand on top of the table at McDonald's after school and I would just preach it. I would sit in front of the game banger and I would just spit back when I heard my pastor speak. Why? Because I heard the good news. And if it's good news for me, then it's good news for you. And so I want you to know, man, did you hear about what God did this weekend? Did you hear about what my God did the other day? Can I tell you about this testimony? Man, when I get home, one of the first things I do is I download all the things that God is doing to my parents. I'm like, Ma, I, this this past weekend I was at this one service and I saw God heal this person and I saw God restore this person we have this young man who's going through this and I saw God open the door for him and I'm just back and forth why because I get excited about this stuff because I heard something good and when you hear something good it doesn't stay in you it comes out of you so let's talk about the reverse if nothing's coming out I wonder how much is coming in Because the Bible says from the depths of your heart, the mouth shall speak. Well, something's got to be deposited in that heart. And some of you aren't listening. You're not hearing me. You don't understand what God is actually doing. And so you miss the opportunities that God gives you to move. One more thought. Jesus is spitballing all these questions on them, right? Do you not perceive it? Do you not understand? Are your hearts hardened? You have eyes, but you can't see. You have ears, but you don't listen. Then he kind of sums it up with this one thing that really hit me hard. He says, do you not remember? Do you not remember? Man, just two chapters ago, Mark 6, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people. And in this chapter, he does it again by feeding 4,000 people. How is it that they could see such powerful recent miracles and still forget? See, a lot of us in this room, we we think along these lines. Well, if God just did a a powerful move of his spirit, it would get on the news and the whole world would believe. No, they wouldn't. Not at all. Why? Because you've seen powerful moves of God and you still don't believe. Because God is constantly moving. Listen, some of you, you're sitting next to your miracle and your heart is still hardening, your eyes are still closed and you still don't hear God came through in a powerful way and you're just sitting there thinking, well, it's just because of this and it's just because of that and I don't care. That's fine for you, I guess. But you're missing. If you would only remember, 
Maybe things would be different. See, Moses had to constantly encourage the people of God to remember and not forget. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, the Israelites were infamous for forgetting about the wonderful things God has done. They were great at reminding God of what he hasn't done, of what he needs to do, of what they want him to do, but how quickly they forget the regular miraculousness of the things that God was doing every day. And I worry sometimes if you and I are in the same boat, if we have a short-term memory when it comes to the goodness of God. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter four, verse nine through 10. It says, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen and let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may each of them, I'm sorry, and teach them to your children. You notice something in Deuteronomy? Let me read that again. Only be careful and watch yourself closely so that you do not forget what your what? Have seen. And let them fade from where? Your heart. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God when he said to me, assemble the people before me to what? Hear my words. Heart that is softened to God, eyes that are open to him, ears that are attentive at listening, and a mind that remembers. This is what Moses is admonishing the people and is telling them, guys, do this and then teach it to your children. And then teach it to your children. I, I don't ever like anybody complaining about this generation. How can you complain about a generation you raised? This is yours. Maybe it's not a failure of the schools and the city and the church. If I could be so bold, maybe you failed to teach them a lesson that you failed to learn. This is something that has to be first internalized and then it can be vocalized. It has to be first learned before it can be taught. And so you have to be willing to take in, worship team, if you can help me out, and remember the things that God has done. I don't know if you've noticed a pattern this year, but I keep talking about this, about remembering, about making journals and writing down and making little notes and memorials and just remembering the things that God has done. And it doesn't matter how long time has passed because what God has done, he has done. And so am I less grateful because it's been 20 years versus two weeks? No. Because the miracle continues. You know, you heard a few testimonies this week, right? You talked Julia, who they found a lump in her breast, and by God's grace, it's no longer there. There's no cancer in it. That's one of many that we've heard this year. That we've come to the prayer meeting on a Wednesday night, and we've prayed God for the miraculous, and we've seen him do it. I was looking at Jaden on the camera, and I was thinking about his father, Danny, and his mother, Denise, and how when he was two, he had cancer in his eye and, and they prayed for God to do the miraculous. And although he lost the eye, he, his life was forever transformed and then transformed the life of the whole family. So much so that the next kid gets named Grace because they experienced it 
in God's house. That man can't afford to forget what God did because his reminder is serving the church right now. And again, I, I, I like to point out things because I think it's important for you to understand that this is not figurative. This is literally happening in the life of this church. But think of your own story. Have you forgotten God's faithfulness in your life? Think about the last prayer he answered. Think about the last miracle he did. Think about what he is doing. Listen, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 13 through 17. This is why I use these parables. They're asking Jesus, like, why are you always teaching in parables? He tells them. For they look, but they don't really see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. This fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah that says, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened and their ears cannot hear and they have closed their eyes. So their eyes cannot see and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. You know the thing about a parable? Let me pause right there before I finish this. Parable is genius in how Jesus teaches because it puts the onus on the listener. See, for someone who is searching God, a parable opens eyes, clears out ears, softens hearts because they're looking for it and now they can see it. For the person who has no intention, some of you in this room who are here out of obligation, who are here because somebody made you, who are here because of a religious obligation, who have no intention on doing anything different. It's not that the gospel is ineffective. It's that you just think it's foolish. And what a parable does is it exposes the foolishness of your heart. And so he says, listen, it's not that I don't want to heal them. It's that they've closed their eyes. They've shut their ears and they have hardened their hearts. And only God can draw them in. But then he adds one more thing, and this is where I desperately need the believers in this room to understand this. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but they didn't see it. And they long to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, lists person after person throughout the Old Testament who long to experience what you and I have gotten to experience. And the Bible says they, they didn't get to experience, but they saw it a long way off. Where did they see it? They saw it this morning in this room. And they rejoiced that God's promise was fulfilled and that his people were redeemed. Listen to me, church. This is so important. Make sure that your hearts are softened. Make sure that your eyes are clear. Make sure that your ears are open. That you will receive everything that God is giving you. Parents, you get this. We often say this to our kids. You got it so much better than I did when I was growing up. Man, if I had what you had and I got the things you did and my parents were the way I am with you, if, if you, if you, if you, and we're always telling them to appreciate what they've received. Well, now I'm telling you, 
because there's a whole half of the Bible people who long to be in the position that you find yourself in today. And yet, we struggle to even think about God on a daily basis to be fully surrendered. They're looking at you and going, if I had that chance to live for God fully, to be redeemed by the Holy Spirit, to have a personal relationship with the living God, oh, what I would do. Stand to your feet. I want to get ready to close. If you would do me a favor for just a moment, would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I want you to just open your ears. Open the eyes of your heart. Listen to me for just a moment. I'm going to talk to the believers in this room for just one minute, but before I do, hey, you might be in this room and there's been a battle throughout this whole message between the Spirit of God and your stubborn heart. And you're sitting there going, I don't care. I am what I am. I, I don't, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I don't even believe in a God, and yet why are you battling? There's a fight going on in your heart right now between what you want and what God wants for you. And I get it. My kids fight me tooth and nail for what they want. They scream and they claw and they even swing at me sometimes and they think that I'm a horrible, mean person. But when they finally let go of the thing they think they want and open their hands to the things that I want for them, in those moments they understand that a loving father wants more for you than you could ever want for yourself. And it starts with one thing and one thing alone. A personal, individual relationship with the living God. So, before we do anything else, we're going to pause this moment for those of you in this room who have never said yes to a personal relationship with Jesus. My prayer this morning was that your heart would be softened, that your eyes would be open, and that you would hear what the Spirit of God is speaking to you. This is between you and God. I'm not going to call you out of your seats. I'm not going to do anything embarrassing because it's between you and the Lord. But I do want to say, if you want to commit your life to Jesus, either for the first time or you want to recommit your life to Jesus in a real and tangible way, all you need to do is lift up your hand and I'm going to pray for you. Is there anyone here? Say, Pastor, that's me. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. Come on, stubborn heart. Don't get shy on me. Thank you, sister. Thank you, sister. Anyone else says, that's me, pastor. I want to be fully surrendered. Thank you, brother. Fully surrendered. Church, would you help me pray this? Let's pray this all together. Say, Jesus, my heart has been softened. My ears are open. And my eyes see the goodness of your name. So I thank you, God, for the good news spoken this morning. And in response, I repent of my sins. I ask you to forgive me, purify me, make me yours. I commit myself, fully surrendered to you and you alone. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.
Amen. Come on, would you give the Lord a hand clap of praise? Now listen, if you made that prayer in a genuine way, in a genuine way, then let us help you with the next steps. In the foyer, we have our Connect Center. Pastor Ariel will be back there. We would love to have a conversation with you. And we're not going to sign you up for a timeshare. We're not going to do a bunch of random stuff. I want to have a conversation with you and help you process this major decision you've just made. So if you would do us the honor before you run out, just give us a few minutes. We want to talk to you. We want to process with you. And for the rest of the church, listen to me. I know I said earlier that around Christmas time, a lot of people show up and not a lot of people commit. Can we pray this month that that would change? That every unbeliever that walks through this door would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, would see the truth of his word, and whose hearts would receive exactly what God intends for them. Will you help me with that, church? Let's commit to praying throughout this month of December for our 24th event. That would not just be a great time of music and fellowship, but that lives would be forever transformed as we lead them to the one and only Savior of the world. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. We love you. We will see you this Wednesday. Be safe.